This is The Guardian. Today, the journalist Danny Lavelle on living through homelessness and what the government should learn from experiences like his. I was 26. I was living in a small flat in Greater Manchester and it was right at the end of my degree. And for months I'd been abusing alcohol and living quite a hermetic lifestyle. And for lots of complicated reasons, I ended up in a race. And then one day I just decided to leave my flat and take a tent and live on a bridal path. It was 2013 when Danny Lavelle found himself alone, homeless, and facing his first night sleeping rough. It was early evening. I could hear the wind rustling through the trees and raindrops bouncing lightly off my nylon roof. I didn't have many things with me, just a change of clothes and my phone. And... I was just quite anaesthetised to the whole thing, really. I just thought something like this was always going to happen to me. Life was coming hard at Danny. A succession of painful events meant that his mental health had been seriously deteriorating for months. The insane thing about it is that I still had my flat. I could have gone back and stayed in my flat that night, but for whatever reason, I think it was my paranoia, I was really worried about bailiffs coming to the house and taking my stuff. And not just taking my stuff, but seeing the state of the place because it was a real bombsite. Unwashed clothes everywhere, discarded food containers, beer bottles. You know, it was a disgrace. So I just felt humiliated and paranoid and, yeah... The shame he felt was overwhelming. But looking back now, Danny knows there were so many factors outside of his control that made him especially vulnerable to becoming homeless. At the time, I just felt like I was a failure, like I'd done this to myself. I still can't understand it. I mean, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I treat it kind of like a crime scene. Mm. Because if you view it in isolation, it just looks like I was acting really irresponsibly and crazy. But... What I wanted to do is actually zoom out, if you like, and look at what led to me ending up in that situation. It kind of raised questions about how much free will you actually have, because I don't think I would have planned this (laughs) if I had the chance. Danny is now an award-winning journalist and the author of the book, Down and Out, Surviving the Homelessness Crisis. It's a scathing analysis of post-austerity Britain. Cuts to council budgets have left charities struggling to respond to the spiralling numbers of homeless people desperately in need of help. He argues that there are straightforward solutions, but that until government invests proper resources and radically changes its approach, things will get so much worse. It's so easy to spiral, especially these days with cost of living crisis and there's so much precarity out there. Mental illness can happen to anyone. Losing your job, it can happen to anyone. From The Guardian, I'm Nosheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, Danny Lavelle on surviving the homelessness crisis.
Danny, you've written a really powerful and, I should mention, funny book about homelessness in Britain and your own experience. Can you tell me, first of all, what were the circumstances that led you to sleeping rough on the streets? So I was in my final year of university. I'd watched my family deteriorate. Like, my mum suffered multiple organ failure, was in the hospital. My grandmother, who I was really close to, had passed away. Two other close family members were in trouble with the police and one was placed in a psychiatric ward. And this was all kind of happening around the same time. And then added to that the pressures of academia because Mm. I left school when I was 14 or 15 with no qualifications at all. Well, I think I did a few GCSEs, but I think I got a bunch of U's. So I was so behind everybody else. But also I was just completely irresponsible. I drank too much, didn't leave the house... I didn't seek treatment for my depression. So I've got a shoulder, some blame for it all. I wonder if you now process that differently, now that time has passed. Yeah. How do you feel about that experience now? How do you understand it? I understand it a lot differently now. Because if you just view the immediate circumstances in isolation, it just looks like I was acting like an arsehole. Sorry, I probably can't swear on today in focus, (laughs) but just acting really irresponsibly. Uh, But then I started looking back at my life and realised I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was very young. And this is when ADHD was naughty boy syndrome. Mm. It's still not completely understood today, but it really wasn't back in the early 90s. And I looked at studies that show that children with ADHD are more likely to become homeless than other people in the population. So already I'd started on that path at the age of six. And then you fast forward to when I was 10, I ended up in special education schools. A disrupted education is also another conduit to Mm. poor social outcomes. So there's another pathway added to it. Then I ended up in care, right? 25% end up homeless at some point in their lives. Mm. So there's another pathway. Then I left school, no qualifications, so that's added on to it. And then I suffered housing precarity from being a young care leaver when all the support was withdrawn. So by the time I ended up in that tent, wasn't really a surprise looking back at it because it's almost like I'd been prepared for it my entire life. I mean, it would be more of a surprise if I hadn't ended up homeless because almost every single person I knew in the care system is either dead, in prison, or they've dropped off the map. I mean, there are just a few of them who I can count who I know have turned out okay. But even then, I wouldn't say they turned out okay. They've just survived. It's a layer of circumstances, essentially having so many odds stacked against you. Yeah. And you've also said that you wonder how much free will we have when actually if you look at all the statistics of all the things that you've been through, all the disadvantages that you've had. Yeah. You know, when I think it was Norman Tebbit that just said, get on your bike and all that. Mm. I grew up in the 30s with an unemployed father. He didn't riot. He got on his bike and looked for work and he kept looking till he found it. And now another Tory recently said, I'll just get a better paid job. But over the long term, we need to have a plan to grow the economy and make sure that people are able to protect themselves better, uh, whether that is by taking on more hours or moving to a better paid job. And these are... these. It's are not like that. Terms. You can't just manufacture a better life. People who follow the paint-by-numbers existence, so they go to school, they get good grades, go to college, go to uni, get a graduate job, and you just do everything 
in that order, then you can make it work in this society for the most part. But if you deviate from that path slightly, then you're going to find it a lot more difficult. Danny, how long were you sleeping rough for? It was about two or three weeks, but it was intermittent rough sleeping. So some nights I would sleep on my brother's couch or a friend's couch, and some nights I'd go to a campsite nearby. So, yeah, it was quite spread out. This is why I feel guilty about saying, oh, I'm a proper rough sleeper, because it's not like I ever slept in a doorway, strung out on hard drugs, asking for loose change. And I think the reason why is because I have a really poor constitution. So although I would binge drink, I'd never had the constitution to become an alcoholic and I was scared of drugs. I think if the dial had been moved in a slightly different way, who knows how far it would have gone. So I think I just count myself incredibly lucky that I'm a bit of a lightweight. It's funny that you describe yourself as guilty as still you find there's categories of homelessness that you seem to think that you don't qualify for. But actually, homelessness isn't just crashing on a pavement, is it? No, no. The vast majority of homeless people are what's described as the hidden homeless. So people sleeping on friends' couches or staying in temporary accommodation in hostels. Rough sleeping is at the very sharp end and it's a minority of people and they usually have severe mental illnesses and substance dependency issues. So, yes, it's quite a different group, actually. Danny, even before we talk about the impacts of the cost of living crisis or the pandemic, the numbers of homelessness were spiralling. And you worked on a series with our colleague, Simon Hattinson, called The Empty Doorway on homeless deaths. What did you learn doing that? Plenty of things, but one of the key takeaways was that homelessness can affect anyone. We had everyone featured in that series from single mothers who actually worked as support workers with the homeless before they ended up on the streets. And also we profiled the life story of an Iranian man called Hamad Alamdari, professor of physics. And he even applied to be Stephen Hawking's assistant at one point. I remember that piece. He died in Harlow and I think he served in the Iran war. And he was ruined with memories of that conflict, I think, and he blotted out that pain with drugs and other substances and his life deteriorated, and then he ended up living in a car, in a Tesco car park. So that really illustrated to me that it can happen to anybody, especially when you consider the type of employment that lots of people of all ages are faced with now in the gig economy, high rents dodgy landlords who can evict you on a whim. And add to that, over all of this, is the spectre of the cost of living crisis and inflation. I would say it can happen to almost anyone in 2022. It just takes a turn of bad luck, an illness, getting sacked from your job, a relationship breakdown, or just being irresponsible, making a few mistakes. But that's the thing about this country. You can't make mistakes Mm. anymore. You're not allowed to. If you make a mistake, you hit rock bottom. But if you are in one of those vulnerable groups, care leavers, people with mental illnesses, people already entangled in the criminal justice system, then it's a lot more likely and you're going to be hit a lot harder. Danny, if someone does find themselves on the brink of homelessness, what options do they have? Who can they ask for help? If you do find yourself in that situation, then you will have to audition in the council's version of The X Factor It's called a homeless application. Mm. So you go in and then tell them your circumstances. And then if you're like me, they'll tell you you're not homeless enough. You're not presenting 
any vulnerability that exceeds your homeless counterparts. So you're going on a list or you're just sent back to the streets like I was or you might get into some emergency accommodation. So it's not an expatriate who can sing and dance the best, no. but who is suffering the most? And also what you'll find is if you're a gypsy traveller and you don't have a local connection to any place or if you're fleeing domestic violence and it's probably not safe for you to remain in your local area, then you'll often get turned away from councils because you don't have a local connection. And also, if you're a rough sleeper, an entrenched rough sleeper, you live a transitory lifestyle, you're probably not going to be in one place at a time. Yeah. So if you do find yourself homeless, just expect a difficult and challenging time. I mean, it depends where you are. It's not true of every local authority. And there are lots of decent charities and third sector organisations that do provide good support. But because our social infrastructure is so fragmented, it makes it a postcode lottery and sometimes a lottery within the same postcode. So you might end up in a really nice supported accommodation with 24-hour staff, security and support workers. Or you might end up in Needle City, Mm. sharing a bed with drunks and addicts and that. It just depends. We know that since 2010, local authorities have seen their budgets massively cut. A report by the Institute of Fiscal Studies last year found that they were the biggest loser in the government's austerity measures, with cuts amounting to 40% in the decade that followed. Danny, how many people are homeless now and what impact did those cuts have? Crisis found that approximately... 305,000 single people, couples and families registered homelessness applications with local authorities in 2019-20. And between 2008-9 and 2017-18, the number of rough sleepers more than doubled. This was after Homeless Link reported that spending by English local authorities on homelessness fell by 27% during that same period. If you are turned away by the local authority... What other options do you have? Where else can someone go? Well, often local authorities, they might turn you away, but they might refer you to other agencies. So there are charitable organisations that might put you up. Danny, in the summer of 2013, you had first-hand experience in the charity sector with Emmaus UK. Mm. Can you explain what they do? Emmaus is a charity that was started in Paris just after the Second World War and it was established by a man called Abbé Pierre. Dans toutes les villes de France, des pancartes s'accrochent où l'on lise... He was a Catholic priest and what he did is he let in people who were rough sleeping after the war and they would work to restore furniture and old rags into second-hand clothing, I believe. Mayors UK accepts people who are homeless or those who have suffered social exclusion into their community. I wouldn't survive without Emmaus. Emmaus have done so much for me because it's like one big family. We're all so close to each other. Even the staff treat us like a family. And... People who are accepted are referred to as companions and companions 
are expected to exchange 40 hours work per week in exchange for bed, three meals a day and a small weekly allowance. Danny, when you moved in, what was it like? I stayed in two of Mayer's communities. The first one I stayed in in 2013 was in Mossley in Greater Manchester and it was inside an old converted textile mill. So it had these really high ceilings, big old iron girders, and it was just full of people from all over the country, but mostly people from around the northwest of England. And I really liked the people there, actually, for the most part. Mm. There was one guy in particular who I got in with, a man called Michael Ledbetter. Michael lived next door to me, and he was one of the most interesting characters I ever met. He was like a hippie who dropped out but never quite managed to drop back in. How I got introduced to Mick was I heard him screaming one night and eventually I got to know all these screaming sessions as Channel Mick where you would liberate the grievances he'd been bottling up all day in a series of screams and you'd only find out that you'd pissed him off during the day at night when he'd start screaming over Pink Floyd albums. But eventually I got to know him and, yeah, he was a bit of a tear away, but he went to grammar school, he was really intelligent. He was pointlessly anarchic and an alcoholic, but he'd even beat me at chess when he'd have, like, four cans of black lager. He was a really smart guy and he really restored a lot of my self-confidence there because he'd constantly remind me that I'm too young to be in this situation, that I shouldn't be here and I should look to progress. Yeah, he was a really interesting guy. And what sort of help do they provide? What was it actually like being there? So all companions were assigned different roles during the day, which ranged from manning the tills in their social enterprise or driving vans or being a driver's mate on the vans and portering furniture to managing the warehouse to working in maintenance around the community, so cleaning up and doing the odd job. In the beginning, I welcomed it because it was a relief to me because all the stress of completing exams and essays and managing my own home had gone. And the work was really difficult. It was furniture portering for the most part, which required you to Mm. lift things like three-piece suites and big wardrobes up and down flights of stairs in tower blocks. It's one of the hardest jobs I've done. You were given four weeks holiday a year, and at the end of the week, if you'd completed your five days, you'd get between £34 and £40 allowance. But that varied from community to community. Between 30 and £40 for 40 hours of hard manual labour a week, not even minimum wage? No. And in fact, there was a clause in the Minimum Wage Act that was passed in 1999 by New Labour that allows charities who are providing a work scheme for the homeless to not pay them the minimum wage. And one might make the argument, well, they're getting their food, they're getting the roof over the head, the rest of it. But let's not forget that a mayor's companions receive housing benefit. So a mayor's would be getting housing benefit for each person that they call companions. Yeah. And companions can have worked in a mayor's for decades and they can be sacked for being caught with a bottle of alcohol in their rooms with no recourse. And that's the same for their housing rights. They don't have those either. You're on a licence to occupy agreement, which means they can turf you out when they like. How and why did you end up leaving? I just left because I just felt like the walls were closing in on me. 
or feeling cabin fever. Because it's normal in any job to look sideways at your colleagues, especially if you're in a low-paid job, because if you perceive that someone's not making as much effort as you are, then you're going to get disgruntled and, you know, gossip and all the rest of it. But that was magnified in a mayor's because you live with each other. And all that was going on, the essence of the community was really starting to crystallise in my mind. So I just had enough and I left. When you look back now, yeah, what do you think Emmaus got right and what do you think could have been done better? So what they get right is they do have quite a community with clear rules and guidelines. You do get to work every day, which is better than sitting in a hostel, twiddling your thumbs or roaming the streets. There are three meals a day. Look, it's better than a lot of the hostels are out there. But I would actually argue that Emmaus just doesn't work. If you want people to work 40 hours a week, you have to pay them and you have to pay them at least the minimum wage. And if their argument is they can't do that, if they did that, they couldn't function, then you don't function. When I was there, they were celebrating more communities opening. And I was thinking, this isn't a moment to rejoice. Your aim should be ceasing to exist. Yeah. But obviously, if there's no homelessness, there's no mayors, And that's not good for their business. It's not good for their staff. So this is why charity will never solve social problems like homelessness. It's not designed to. If we really want to solve homelessness, we have to return housing provision back to the public sector, where it's in the interest of the public sector to solve homelessness as quickly as it can, because that saves them money, doesn't it? But it does seem in the last decade that the charity sector has taken on this outsized share of responsibility. Mm. What do you think about the role of local councils and central government? Well, I think it's no accident that charity has grown since 2010. People forget about the big society now, don't they? But that was at the heart of the Tories' election manifesto in that year. We've had 13 years of Labour's big government and it's making our social problems worse. We say it's time for change, it's time for the big society that we offer. Let's say to those charities and social enterprises that have got great ideas to tackle poverty, go ahead and do it. And the big society is basically, you're on your own, mate. It's about shrinking the state and having charity handle most of our social problems and other services. That's why I call it the Victorian tribute government. They just want to whisk us back to the 19th century. I do remember there was a lot of Tory excitement about David Cameron's notion of this big society and how it was up to us as civic volunteers and for charities to just pick up all the slack. I remember working on a piece which was counting food banks across the UK. And this still startles me now that when I started, I counted tens before the coalition government came to power in 2010. And then suddenly it was hundreds. And now there are thousands, thousands of food banks. What did you find in your analysis of the big society and how it's worked and how it hasn't? I don't think it's worked at all. I mean, homelessness has skyrocketed since 2010. The homeless deaths increased last year from the year before. It's not equipped to deal with these problems. And you've got lots of charities that rely on donations and donations are given arbitrarily. They're not guaranteed funding. So at the moment, the government is leaning on the charity and the third sector to support homeless people, while local councils are running on a completely stripped back budget. In your view, how do we begin to fix homelessness in this country? What we have in Britain at the moment is something called the staircase approach. The staircase approach requires that people are getting some kind of treatment for whatever ailment might be, whether it's 
mental health issues or addiction issues, dependency issues, before they can get housing. But the reasons people become homeless is complicated. The solution to homelessness is simple. I'm not saying solving homelessness is going to be easy, but it's simple. So in Finland, they've tried a Housing First programme, and the idea of Housing First is that you give homeless people a home in the first instance because they recognise housing as a human right, and then you tailor support specifically to their needs only when they're in a home. And that's worked in Finland. They've virtually eradicated rough sleeping. General homelessness has also been reduced significantly, and we've seen a similar outcome in Utah in America where it's been trialled. So we know this works, we know the answer, and also we did it in this country. If people cast their minds back to the pandemic and the everybody in policy, they virtually eradicated, again, rough sleeping from the streets in Britain. They put them up in hotels where they were getting support from charities and so on, and it worked. So we know what to do, but yet we continue to do business as usual because it's purely ideological It's not about practicality. They're not interested in solving homelessness, these Tories, because if they were, they'd do it. It's not complicated. Just the case in point, I think what illustrates this is Jacob Rees-Mogg's attitude to the increase in food banks. He welcomed it. And to have charitable support given by people voluntarily to support their fellow citizens, I think is rather uplifting and shows what a good, compassionate country we are. And as I say, inevitably, the state can't do everything. Well, that's their attitude to this. But before I guess everyone starts counselling their direct debits to charities, it's not necessarily that the charities are at fault. I mean, they exist because they're providing an immediate need. It is not on them to fix a solution which is beyond their capabilities, right? Without them at the same time, presumably the situation would be a lot worse. Oh, of course, yeah. And look, I'm glad you raised that because I don't want to criticise anyone who works for a charity or donates to charity. Most of the people who work in charity are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to help people who are worse off than them. So I'm not having a go at people who work for charities. And I'm not saying people should stop donating to charity because some help is better than no help. What I'm saying is, is that they don't provide a solution in the long term. Coming up... Danny gets himself back to university, but he can't escape the impact of homelessness. Danny, what happened to the people that you met during your time at Emmaus? What happened to Mick? So fast forward a few years later, I'd managed to get a place at Goldsmith University to study journalism. And I remember one day I was in the computer room with lots of other students sat around me and I was reading the Manchester Evening News and... Uh, sorry. Um, Mick's, um, Mick's picture came up and it said he'd gone missing. So I was very worried. And a few days later I found out that he'd drowned in the same river that we used to play chess next to. I'm sorry, Danny. And although I was really upset and still upset, it wasn't surprising because Mick just—he used to fall over all the time. Like, just you know, he'd get so drunk and then he'd end up falling asleep on the riverbed and make his way into the community in the early hours of the morning. And I remember once he fell into the canal and he had to be fished out. And I remember people telling him, you know, you'd be in serious shit if this happens when no one's watching. Mm. So I don't know if that's what happened, but. It wouldn't surprise me, but yeah. I'm sorry, Danny. No, it's, uh... 
I still think about him. He was a, he deserved more than that. Did Mick? Danny, what do you think is the one thing someone listening to this who desperately wants to help a homeless person, either big or small, to make a difference in the life of a homeless person? Talk to them. If you see someone on the street all the time and you walk past them every day, maybe just try and have a conversation with them. They're people just like you. Especially if you're feeling the pinch and you can't afford to give to charity, then share a drink with someone. Volunteer, there's plenty of things you can do. Obviously, you've been through a massive amount, but you've also achieved an incredible amount. You know, you've got a journalist career, you've written a book, and I wonder if it still plays on your mind. Do you still feel anxious or stressed about the future possibility of ending up in a situation like that again? Oh, yeah, because when I was in London and when I was working on the Empty Doorway series, in fact, just after it had ended, when Simon and I won an award at Press Gazette, I think, I was given an eviction notice because my landlord was running a HMO, a house in multiple occupation, mm. without a proper licence. So the council said, you can't keep people there. This house is designed for families. And I was living in a flat with 13 people in it, in a box room. There were cameras everywhere. It was crazy. Every move you made was being watched. There was a bathroom in there that I think it's the only bathroom in the world where you emerged dirtier than when you came in. Mm. So I had to shower at the local leisure centre. But anyway, yeah, he kicked us out. And I think it was just before Christmas we had to move. And before we ended up in that flat, me and my friends, we were living in a flat in Arsenal, North London. And... Our landlord, who turned out not to be our landlord at all, but a person subletting our rooms, sent us an eviction text from his holiday in China on New Year's Eve when me mm. and my mate were stood at Ali Pali watching the fireworks. I <laughs> got that just before midnight, you know. So that was good. God, it just really does go to show, doesn't it, that when you're renting, you are just at the mercy of landlords. Danny, I remember you writing that you felt like an anomaly. What did you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do feel like an anomaly. You don't hear from a lot of people like me in the media, I don't think. So that makes me feel guilty sometimes. wonder if you could just promise me, Danny, that you'll also take some credit for the fact that you have gotten out of a really difficult situation and you have achieved so much and stopped giving yourself such a hard time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I probably should start doing that. Yeah, there's a lot to be proud of. Danny, thank you so much. Oh, thanks. We put some of the points raised by Danny in this episode to Emmaus UK, and they provided the following statement. Emmaus provides a home, meaningful work, and the chance to belong to a community, to people who have experienced homelessness, it is this combination of home, work and community that helps to restore the self-esteem that is often decimated when someone becomes homeless. Licence agreements are very commonly used within hostel settings and other accommodation provision across the country. The licence agreement sets out rights and expectations and clearly outlines the eviction procedure, including the standard notice period given under those circumstances. In exceptional circumstances, for example, where the individual involved poses a safeguarding risk, they could be asked to leave immediately. In all circumstances, we will work with the individual involved to try to ensure they have somewhere to go when they leave. The allowance given to companions living at an Emmaus community is not a wage, it is part of a package of support. 
when someone moves into an Emmaus community, they are given accommodation, all of their meals, and other essential items. Like any charity working to address homelessness, Emmaus UK would like to no longer be needed. Unfortunately, the continuing homelessness problem in the UK and the anticipation that this will only rise due to the cost of living crisis means that charities like ours are needed more than ever. We therefore do celebrate any growth that means we are able to help more people, which is completely in line with our charitable purpose. My thanks to Danny Lavelle. You can catch up with his and Simon Hattonstone's very moving series that we talked about earlier, The Empty Doorway, and more from Danny's reporting at theguardian.com. I would also recommend reading his book, Down and Out, Surviving the Homelessness Crisis, which is out now. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Courtney Youssef. Sound design is by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Elizabeth Cassin and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.